Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hello and how's it going? Today we're talking about Die Hard 2. Until he tries to take off, period. Now you're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Story of my life. This is an American action-adventure airport thriller. Directed by Rennie Harlan. The cast includes Die Hard, that guy from Die Hard 1, that other guy from Die Hard 1, Holly from Die Hard, Amerigo Vesepi, the Grim Reaper, Cleo McDowell, guy that looks like a cop, and discount Kelsey Grammer. I watched this movie on YouTube. Joey, how did you watch it? I watched it on Amazon. All right, so now uh, I will be reading the comprehensive synopsis of this as written by our very own Joey. Um, so here we go. Die Hard 2 is the continuation of normal cop John McClane's adventures while off duty. In Die Hard 1, McClane is a New York cop in LA visiting his wife on Christmas. In Die Hard 2, McClane is waiting in Dulles Airport for Holly's plane to land so they can enjoy Christmas together. As he waits in the extremely busy airport, he notices a couple of suspicious-looking characters wandering about. His cop senses tingling, he decides to follow them. His snooping soon reveals these guys are messing with the airport's equipment. McLean confronts them, killing one and the other escapes. From the guy's guns and fingerprints, McLean knows these aren't just some casual criminals. These are some real bad guys. The kind of guys you only meet once. Unless, of course, you're John McClane. Yeah! <laughs> McClane brings his findings to the Captain Lorenzo of the Dulles Airport Police. Lorenzo recognizes McClane from Die Hard 1 and jumps at the opportunity to impress this famous hot-headed cop by not listening to McClane and by being loud and belligerent. He tells McClane to leave the investigation alone and to get out of his office. But McLean is soon validated. The airport, the air traffic control tower begins to shut down mysteriously, and the runway lights all turn off. A voice comes over the tower's loudspeaker, informing the air traffic controllers that someone else is taking over control of the airport, and that he is holding all the planes in the air hostage until his demands are met. The voice belongs to Colonel Stewart, an ex-military terrorist. His goal is to free his boss, General Esperanza, a man who is being extradited to the United States by plane. The general's plane is set to land in Dulles in mere hours, and Colonel Stewart plans to intercept him and escape on a plane of his own. The plan is perfect. The only thing they didn't account for is John McClane. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> McLean and Captain Lorenzo yell at each other about how wrong the other was, but our real hero, Engineer Barnes, has a plan. There is an auxiliary antenna located in another terminal. He sets out to rewire it to communicate with the planes and take the airport SWAT team with him. But Stuart anticipated this and set a trap, killing the entire SWAT team and blowing up the antenna. McLean appears saving Barnes and single-handedly taking out, like, 30 guys? Maybe it was only three. I'm not sure, honestly. <laughs> In retaliation for the death of his men, Stuart decides to send a message. He impersonates the tower and contacts one of the planes. 
He adjusts their readings so they think the ground is lower than it really is, causing the plane to crash and explode. Everyone in the tower is shaken by the events, but the rest of the people in the airport and planes have no idea about the tragedy that just occurred on the tarmac. Inside one of these planes is Holly, McLean's wife. Holly is on board with another character from Die Hard 1, the annoying news guy who she punches at the end of the movie. In this one, you know he is even more annoying by the way he bothers the flight, the flight staff. He starts to get anxious about why the planes are circling and decides to investigate. Back on the ground, the military has been called in. Like Captain Lorenzo, they pretend not to be impressed with McLean's celebrity cop status. <laughs> Engineer Barnes hatches a new plan, plan to contact the planes. He warns them about the situation and explains why they need to keep circling the airport. This transmission is intercepted by the news guy on Holly's plane. Believing he has the scoop of a lifetime, he prepares a statement to read to his station. As everyone else is busy, General Esperanza's plane is about to land. He has killed his captors on the plane and is flying it himself. With Stuart's help, he lands successfully. But before Stuart and his goons can arrive, McLean appears, prepared to take the general in. Esperanza resists, and McLean shoots him in the arm. Stuart and his men arrive, forcing McLean to make a hasty retreat via the pilot's ejection seat. Stuart, his men, and now the general, all head back to their hiding place in a nearby church. Engineer Barnes, again, the real hero of this story, tells McLean that Stuart is likely hiding in a building near the airport, and the two go into the suburbs to look for his base of operations. Together, they discover the church, and McLean tussles with a guard, stabbing him in the eye with an icicle as Barnes calls for backup. The army and Stuart exchange machine gun fire, and Stuart, his men, and the general escape on snowmobiles. McLean pursues and, make a, and makes a shocking discovery. Stuart's men were shooting blanks. But why? That must mean that they didn't want to kill the army guys. And that must mean... Dun, 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 dun. The army guys are in on it. McLean rushes back to the airport, but the news guy has already started his broadcast, telling the world about what is really happening at Dulles Airport. The people, terrified of news, start to panic and run around like maniacs. McLean fights his way through the alarmed crowd, finding a different news person who has a helicopter. They fly to the tarmac where the bad guys are ready to take off. Everyone on the ground and in the plane is panicking, so Holly takes matters into her own hands. She steals a taser off an animal-abusing granny and tases the news guy to stop him from spreading more fear. Take that, journalism! McLean jumps onto the wing of the plane and fights each of our bad guys in ascending narrative importance. He gets kicked off by Stuart, but not before taking the fuel cap off the wing. As he lies on the tarmac and the plane starts to take off, he says his classic line and with his lighter lights the line of jet fuel left behind by the plane. The flame follows the plane into the air and triggers an epic mid-air plane explosion, killing all of our remaining bad guys. With the path of jet fuel creating a marker for the pilots, all of the circling planes safely land right after each other. Holly and McLean are happily reunited and ride off into the Christmas morning while Let It Snow plays over the credits. 
the end. Woo! <laughs> Good job. Wow. It's a comprehensive a uh, synopsis, but it, it feels like you really can't leave. It feels like all of those events are of similar importance, you know? It's hard yes. to leave any of them out. It takes a while for the story to happen, and then it also takes a while for it to the end. <laughs> yes. And they use every minute of this movie. Like, it really does end very, like, not suddenly, but it all ends at once. And, yes. Uh, so, but, but big ups to you as well, Joey, for writing such well, a comprehensive thank you for synopsis. <laughs> you did a much better job than I can. Okay, but so this, this podcast is about more than just saying what happened in this movie. We're going to analyze it as well. So let's start with our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about Die Hard 2? It's a high adrenaline action movie, high stakes, some really great ideas executed really well, um, constant twists and turns, and memorable moments. What about you? I thought it had great stunts and action. It delivers on you know, some of the things you must deliver on when you're making an action film. It has effective use of the diehard formula, and that's to say that like it took a lot of stuff from the first movie and continued to use it. So if you liked Die Hard, there's a lot to like in Die Hard 2. Uh, I think it had at least one well-executed plot twist, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. It, I don't think it tarnishes the reputation of the original. I think it at least, you know, doesn't take away from the original and that's good because sequels always have a danger of doing that and uh it has epic explosions they really take advantage of their explosion budget in this movie oh to yeah great effect <laughs> <laughs> but what about we put all our money into explosions right <laughs> but what about cons joey what did you not like about die hard 2 there's not a lot of characterization john McClane is just that guy from die hard 1 um, there's some cringy, really cringy one-liners. It's complicated and really convoluted, I think, as a plot. Um, really? Th- like, <laughs> After that long thing. This, this, <laughs> I think that as a sequel, they like you can go in a couple different directions. And this one, they just went bigger. And that was the decision they did. What about you? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with all of that. I, I think this movie is very surface level. I, it, it, it feels like... They liked the action from Die Hard 1, and they're like, what if we did it, but this time not in a tower, but in an airport? And also, yeah, yeah, didn't necessarily make it any more complicated or deep. It's just more John McClane saving the day when the authorities can't handle it. So... Let's, uh, those are our pros and our cons. A brief look into what we're, our analysis. Now let's get into our overall section. Joey, go ahead. Die Hard 2 is just a bigger, longer, and more action-y version of Die Hard, but it lacks Die Hard's heart, its humor, and its interesting and rich characters. I think the premise is awesome. There's hundreds of lives in the air. Terrorists have taken over the airport, and our main character's wife is on the plane. I think it's, so, it's a great recipe for some really great res- uh, drama. And you see some of that. Uh, Stewart's impersonation of the tower in the subsequent crash is truly a great like movie moment. Uh, the twist with the army guys being bad guys is fun and memorable. And all of the stunts that John McClane pulls going, from, going out onto the tarmac waving torches to saving Barnes, the engineer, to fighting the guys in the wing of the plane, it's all great. It's, it's fun. It's tense. It's just purely good action but it's not great action the first diehards fights felt slow and clunky 
This one is a little more fluid and modern. Uh, but it's a lot of it is just guns or guys shooting each other with guns. Gunfights, I think, are just so boring. Um, you see the kind of you see a twist on that on something like uh, John Wick, where it's a lot of gunfights, but it's also hand to hand and stuff. Uh, but in this one, it's you know it's point and shoot and hide, shoot and hide, shoot and hide, and the good guy never gets shot and the bad guys always die. It's just so predictable. Um, and you know, maybe this is a product of its time. Maybe I've seen too many action movies that have been made since Die Hard 2, but honestly, it doesn't feel subversive in any way. It's just them shooting at each other from a distance. And then John McClane, he's rolling on the ground, but they can never hit him. And he always like hits his mark. So it's just like, uh, I'm bored now, basically. I totally agree. Like the scene where they go to, uh, like the antenna where they're trying to get engineer Barnes over there. Yeah. There's a scene where like, there's a guy who has the height advantage on John. He's literally just shooting down at John and John is laying on the floor, no no protection around him, no nothing. And nothing. he's just like rolling over and dodging bullets. It's like, yes. dude, who trained these mercenaries or these former military guys? These guys <laughs> Well, suck. they took out the SWAT guys so easily. The SWAT guys yeah, were like actually hiding and shooting and they were like, they were just gone. So, yeah. Stuart, our, our main antagonist, he has presence, I think. He's cool, but fierce. He's flippant with human life and really mean. I think he's a really good villain, actually. But he is nothing compared to Hans Gruber. I mean, on his own, Stuart would be a surprisingly fun villain for an action, just like a generic action movie. Um, but not when you're following it up against Alan Rickman and his suave, slippery nature, his brilliant, intricate plan. Stuart's plan seems silly in comparison to Hans Gruber's, I think. And then there's McLean. In Die Hard 1, he's a truly dynamic character. You know him, you feel for him. He's flawed, but you want to see him overcome that and all the other obstacles you see in that movie. In this one, he's just John McLean, super famous cop. And, and at the end, or, he's Or you bloody. could say famous super cop. <laughs> well, okay. Well, let's talk about that, actually. Okay, so there's... I don't. I haven't seen all the Die Hard movies, but I've seen. I know about them. I know what they're like. Kind of the trend that goes toward it. Um, this I'm starting to see something that I've heard happens, which is that John McClane becomes a superhero. Ah, I see. Um, so, in, like the, one of the things that people love about the first one is that he's just a normal guy. You know, he makes mistakes. He tries plans and it doesn't, and it backfires. Right? He thinks on his feet and everything, and you really want to see him succeed. But in the end, he's just a normal cop uh, who happens to get lucky in many uh, instances. Right? In this one, you start to see a little bit more of his like, I'm gonna do it on my own, and only I can fix it kind of thing. And you see him in so many of these situations where he's the only one there. Right? He's the only one on the tarmac when General Esperanza arrives. He's the only one willing to stop the plane when it's out there. Everyone else is arguing about what's going to happen or what they're supposed to do. And everyone's turning on each other. But John McClane, he knows exactly what to do. He goes out there and he does what needs to be done, you know, regardless of his own um, safety or whatever. So, like, that's because he is doing that, right? You're like, okay, he's, he's the same guy from the first one. But the nature of that, of that situation is so much different because there's so many other people that he can pull from. He's not just by himself, right? He's got all these other people that, he can, that are there to help him. But he's not letting the authorities come in or something. He's like, I have to handle this myself. 
and he's validated at every turn. Right. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And it works out perfectly every single time. There's, there's never a moment where he makes the wrong decision in this. Whereas I think in Die Hard 1, you could say like him pulling the fire alarm was a, was a risky decision that kind of, that ended up benefiting him, but it had unintended consequences. Whereas in this one, that something like that never really happens. Right. And it seems like in the fir- in Die Hard 1, John's, his reaction almost at every step is what's the like most logical solution to this and it's never one man army take everyone else take him out by yourself that ends up being what he has to do but it's after he's already exhausted his other resources and this one it seems like he does that early on and then immediately he's like okay these guys are no help john mcclain super soldier confirmed you know and i'll just from here on out i will take care of everything so I wouldn't say he's like necessarily like super. He got into superhero levels yet for this one, but you can start to see the slip. Yeah, right. Yeah. You can start to see him in Die Hard One compared to Die Hard Two, where that kind of trend is going. And I'm curious to see how that's going to happen in later ones too. Um, he but in this one he has basically no arc. Uh, his the arc is that uh, Captain Lorenzo likes him by the end, basically. At the beginning, <laughs> he, he hates him, and at the end, he respects him. It's basically the arc, which is not really an arc for John McClane. It's more of an arc for Lorenzo, and not even an arc for Lorenzo, just as much as Lorenzo's uh, like uh, re- relationship with McClane. So, yeah. There's, there's also no drama between or tension between him and Holly, uh, which was a, kind of a palpable thing in the first one, um, or any of the other members uh, of his family uh, or anyone else really in this story. Uh, there's there's no um i I was hot-headed and thought i could do it on my own but it turns out i needed to help the others he's validated over and over again by every action he makes uh, and that makes him you know the perfect hero and i think that kind of makes him an audience surrogate in some ways you're like what would i do in this situation well what would or what would be the most awesome thing i could do in this situation like that would definitely get all the uh things you know <laughs> that hit all the boxes i would i would go out there myself land on a wing of the plane and i would fight them one-on-one and then drop them into the uh what what's it called the jet engine so yeah it, the, how many times in this movie is he uh the only one doing something and where he's acting completely alone right right i, I think all of the characters are flat like this actually the person I like the best is the air traffic controller Trudeau, played by Frank Thompson, aka uh, uh, Discount Kelsey Grammer. I think he's great. I think he's a solid leader. He's a great speaker. He remains calm under extreme pressure. Uh, but that's um, that's it, actually. That's all he is. There's there's not much more to his character. Um, and my other my other favorite character in the story is Barnes, the engineer. He always has a scheme. He's always thinking of something clever. Uh, he isn't afraid to do uh, something that might save lives, even if it's risky. Uh, he never hesitates. He al- he's always going, which is kind of the, uh, maybe that's an air traffic controller attribute or something, because those peak guys have to operate under extreme pressure all the time. Uh, I've heard that like that, that job is, like you can't stay there for, so, for more than like 10 years or something, because it just shoots your nerves, essentially. Um, so you really like seeing this guy go out there and, and, and try a bunch of stuff. But that's... Again, that's kind of all you get. You don't get any sort of backstory or interesting facts about him. He doesn't like grow to like and trust McLean because he recognizes similar attributes in him. Um, he's really the same guy that you start with. Um, he's not better by the end of the movie or different by the end of the movie in any way. And I think that's really to this movie's detriment. Um, 
all of our contrived situations, the perfect timings, McLean's drifting into superhero territory could be forgiven if this story uh, had characters that um, were interacting in a strange and unusual situation, especially something as high stakes as all of these lives hanging in the air, literally. Um, this is one of the reasons why I think Die Hard 1 works as well as it does. It's it, You take this fully formed character, John McClane, and this fully formed character, Hans Gruber, and all the other characters in that movie. You stick them in one place and say, let's see what happens, basically. And then you, the rest of the movie is just playing out how these different um, characters, how these different heroes interact and play off of each other, right? You get McClane, you have that whole scene with McClane and Gruber interacting with each other where Gruber's pretending to be one of the hostages and faking an American accent and everything. That's that kind of situation is is cool as a concept, but it works so much better in that movie because you believe that that's something that Gruber and McClane would do. Oh, yeah. Whereas in this one, where in this one, it's like, okay, how do we get a plane to explode? Yes. <laughs> how do we get, um, how do we get McClane to blow up all the bad guys at the same time? How do we get McLean to stab a guy in the eye with an icicle? Right. It's way more like let's get to that situation and set it up. And McLean is just a pawn to the to the plot more than driving the plot forward himself. Um, and when you you kind of hate to see that happen because Die Hard Two is way more focused on setting up these cool set pieces than showing you a deeper world. I totally agree. And it like if you just think about Die Hard, even some of the, mi- like the original Die Hard, even some of the minor characters are way more fleshed out than even the most fleshed out side character in this movie. Like if you think about yeah. that douchey, like business coworker that Holly had, he even had like a character arc where he starts out as this, uh, you know, guy who's trying to sleep with John's wife and eventually, well, he dies and, and it's, he's, <laughs> he has uh, his whole progression in that movie, which he just is completely missing from any of the characters in this one. Uh, besides well, yeah, probably Lorenzo, about, I would say, who... Yeah, it was interesting about Ellis, I, the cocaine guy, yeah. is like he has a bunch of all... He has a bunch of different traits that all stem from the same thing, where he's kind of an arrogant asshole, right? He thinks he can get with John's wife because he's an arrogant asshole. He thinks he can t- talk his way out of the hostage situation because he's an arrogant asshole. His cocaine in, <laughs> in his boss's office because he's an arrogant asshole. But all those are interesting about... and, and characterize him as an arrogant asshole without you telling him that he is right uh, whereas this movie it's like okay well they have one thing and they just stick to it, it again they're one-dimensional characters throughout and mclean is that too he's you show he you know he cares about his wife but he, you think he cares about everybody you know he's like i care about everyone and i hate authority it's kind of his two things right right well like the yeah yeah i totally agree like the scene where the plane explodes it's like everyone reacts probably in a similar way to if john's wife had been on that plane you know like it's yes he's he's uh it's really hard for him to see that loss of life which is a normal reaction of course but at the same time like it doesn't really feel like his wife is any more special to him than anybody else it's just you know it's his wife of course but but what i want to talk about is the how Die Hard 2 sticks to the Die Hard formula in a lot of ways like this movie carries a lot of the same threads forward uh, that we had from the first movie of course, we've got John McClane, but we've also got like street level cops versus like the feds. And we've got international criminals again being who John is trying to stop. We've got the news media. We've got John's wife being in danger. We've got John's working class buddy who John doesn't know before the movie, but then they become fast friends in the film and they give John a ride at the end of the movie, which of course was Argyle in the first one. And now it's <laughs> Marvin. 
<laughs> Marvin the janitor. Yeah, yeah, these guys who are like doing some sort of you know job that's not really looked highly upon, but it, you know is an important part of society. And John, being a working class guy himself, becomes their friend, and then they give him a ride at the end of the movie while he listens to Let It Snow. But I feel like the the relationship between him and Marvin, and relationship between him and Argyle, is way different. And in this, I think, because he's interacting with his, I think that's supposed to be the parallel, right? Like, there's a working class guy who everyone, like, everyone ignores, right. who actually turns out to, like, really help him, basically. But I think he treats Argyle with way more respect than he does with Marvin. Marvin, he kind of treats like a crew, like a kook, and he even threatens his life at one point. He says, how would I let you live? Well, no, he's Marvin. just speaking his language because then Marvin's like, oh, you know how to, you know how to strike a deal or whatever. This guy knows how to negotiate. So, uh, but I, I, I see what you mean though. He does. He, he's more like a utility where Argyle seemed more like a genuine friendship. Yeah, a genuine connection. Right. Yeah. But either way, they give him a ride at the end, which makes them sticking to the diehard form. It does. <laughs> but there are differences, of course, and and what the obvious one is the setting and. Uh, you know, instead of being contained within a tower, this movie takes place in an airport as well as the surrounding area um, and the planes above. And I think they do a good job of utilizing this. Uh, like the like air, or airports have you know unique locations that make for good action, including using the moving walkway, the luggage sorting conveyor belts, the airplane runway. Like all these places are great sets for action. Um, Oh, yeah. And even though John is doing a lot of the same stuff he did from the first movie, it does feel fresh that he's doing it in a completely new area, especially when you think about how contained Die Hard 1 is. Um, another thing that's like different that I noticed was like Die Hard 1, he didn't wear shoes the whole time. He would have been in real <laughs> trouble if he wasn't wearing shoes in this one. He would have gotten frostbite oh, for sure. But yeah, I think the um, I think the airport setting is is awesome. I think that's one of the best. I think that's one of the best things about this movie. Yeah. Um, it's such a creative idea to like take over the air traffic control tower and then hold the entire airport hostage. It, like you, you kind of as a normal person, you understand what that situation is or how that relationship works between the the air, the airplanes and the air traffic control tower. But it's you've never seen that subverted in this way, uh, and you never see like the amount of control that that potentially would give you over all these different people it's i think it's very creative um and it makes the uh the stakes so high but not so not to the point where you can't imagine them right exactly it's all it's centered on this group of people who are flying into dulles at this particular time it's not like all planes in the entire world will crash unless right we'll crash at the same time like how many people are talking we're talking millions (laughs) and you're just like uh, I cannot oh, conceive. I, but only- but when they when they, when they crash that plane and it, like they say two hundred thirty people are on this plane or something, that's that's real. That yeah. makes you, oh man! It's I was like I can't believe they crashed the plane because McLean's out there with the uh, with the things yeah. and you think they're gonna pull it up and the plane lands right like it actually kind of like crashes but like but the it seems okay and then the thing then the the jet starts to explode and then the whole thing just goes up in flames and you're like no and then later <laughs> on they're like they have the uh the cleanup crew or something yeah and yeah. they say it's a mess down here yeah. there's no survivors it's a nightmare yeah and it's yeah so uh, that was a great call i think this like plot is actually based on a book called 58 minutes uh, yes i saw that in wikipedia as well yeah so it's like obviously like it sounds like a pretty good story um and i think that that 
I agree. That is one of the best parts of this. Um, another difference from Die Hard 1 is the villain. Um, and I, I don't think Colonel Stewart is nearly as intimidating or as interesting as Hans Gruber. But I do think... What about... Okay, what, what do you think about this, though? He has this really classic line. Like we figured. It's a joke. Colonel Stewart, can we have a few words, please? You can have two. Fucking you. No pictures, you pinko bitch. <laughs> Doesn't that elevate him to the level of, we're not, what do you actually think we're terrorists? <laughs> yeah, he's really badass for dropping an F-bomb in a rated R movie. Good job. I got two words for you. <laughs> I mean, he, he was looking a little bit Ivan Drago to me at the very beginning with his, like, mm. he's shredded and he's, like, working out naked. I was like, oh, this guy is going to be a total psycho. But overall, I, I didn't really feel like he be, got elevated to that level. Like, he was a, sure, a cool and calculated uh, villain, but once the plan started to fall apart, he kind of like it, he got defeated with it as well you know and i guess the plan didn't really fall apart the twist that was in there uh happened which i actually thought was one of the better parts of like the villain aspect of this movie esperanza major grant i think his name is yeah and uh colonel stewart they kind of as a group represent the villain in this movie and and i think that because of that they they accomplished their goal i think major grant being a traitor was a really fun twist and i totally didn't see it coming like i was completely blindsided when he when he uh slashed that guy's throat and i was like oh wait what you know like and that's what you want out of a twist and i i think they pulled that off really well i i think that the um like they they give you clues where even though I th- I was like, there's got to be blanks in those clips, but why would they have blanks? What's going on? Like I I didn't connect the dots until they wanted me to, and um, you know I I I always talk about this with people, and I'm like, the twist was done really well, and a- a- there's always somebody who's like, no, nah, I totally saw it coming. It sucked, and I'm like, <laughs> okay, well maybe I'm just not a galaxy brain, but I I thought that that was a well executed twist, which pays off. Um, yeah, I I yeah. really didn't see it coming either. I think it's something that they. They, they didn't really set it up that much, I don't think. They set up that they had a relationship before, um, and then they had the thing with the uh, cartridges. Right. Some of them were blue and some of them were red, and th- there was a connection there, and I was like, why would they have the same colors or something? I, and I didn't understand. And then, yeah, it, it gets weird. Like, there's that one part where they say, go around the back, and then McLean says, they're escaping out the back. And if, so if you're paying attention, really close attention to the dialogue, it seems like maybe um, there's something there. I don't know. But it, it's all part of this theater that they put up to like, we're going to, you know, we're going to come in here and and do whatever. I guess I would have wanted to see how they contacted them. Like, how did they get this specific group of guys to show up at the airport? Right. Because that was the first thing John says is when the military arrives, he's like one unit or one squadron or whatever mm. he uses some military jargon he's like yeah like one platoon one platoon yeah. yeah and he's like one crisis one platoon you know and that's how they get past it and that to me i was like what that doesn't really make any sense so it, it would have been <laughs> it would have been kind of cool to know how they got around the military's reaction to it but in the end I, I don't think it matters that much it's clear that the military guys who are currently in the military and former military guys were in on this they planned this and, and i i think it, it holds up so i like it's really an anti-military movie if you think about yes it. and <laughs> it's uh we'll get into kind of the the politics of general esperanza here in a second but as far as representing the opposition against uh, john mcclain i think they did an okay job it's not hans gruber but it's it's not like a major short 
uh, fall of this movie as far as uh, you know what what they represent. I really do wish they were more interesting characters, but they they fill the role just fine. Um, yeah, yeah, they're they're bad, they're goons. You know, there's lots of them. They got guns. Um, that's that's about as far as it goes. But that makes them a good enemy sure. too. So yeah, and, and and finally one one more thing that's different from Die Hard One is you mentioned it before the hand-to-hand combat is a little bit more smooth it's more organized uh, that was one of my biggest criticisms of Die Hard is that the hand-to-hand combat felt clumsy and uninteresting they just kind of grapple and roll around on the ground and it's you know it, it looks like you know me and my brother when we were in elementary school you know fighting over the tv remote it, it's not quite as interesting as what we get in this movie which is I feel like intentional response to criticism where they actually there i can think of two examples uh where they really put the hand-to-hand combat front and center one is when they're in the baggage sorting area and john gets into a fight with a uh like his gun gets separated from him and him and this other guy fight as well as fighting uh with colonel stewart on the wing of the airplane where uh john gets totally countered and and kicked on his butt so it was I, I think it's a noticeable improvement and I have to say well done to that because uh, they, they did improve on one of the things I didn't like from the first one. But uh, let's, let's talk about General Esperanza. Okay. So okay. General Esperanza was the military dictator in the South American country of Valverde. And apparent, according to what they say in this movie, he led his country's army in a campaign against communist insurgents, and this won him the favor of the United States government. Uh, and that's why they gave him money and they gave him weapons. But eventually, he started messing with the neutrality of neighboring countries, so he lost U.S. support. I don't know what that means, but uh, maybe he was being hostile or something. But he lost U.S. support, so he lost his funding, and he turned to drug trade to keep himself funded. He also did other illegal stuff like racketeering and kidnapping his political enemies. And so the U.S. wanted to make him an example of the war on drugs, so they had him extradited. And But despite all that, he still is popular with a lot of people in his country, and also he has supporters around the world. But what exactly is his political ideology? What makes people love him so much that, he, like, that they betray the United States in support of him? I'm, uh, I, I wanted to hear somebody on the opposing mm-hmm. side state their beliefs or say something that unites them in some sort of way of life or belief system that justifies their opposition to the United States. And we get really close. There's a part where General, or Colonel Stewart starts to pontificate, uh, and we'll listen to that right now. Gentlemen, tonight the pattern ends. The dominoes will fall no more, and the ramparts will remain upright. So General Esperanza's play just came on the screen. So <laughs> immediately interrupted. Exactly. It sounded like we're going to finally get a little bit of insight on who these guys are and why they're doing the thing that they're doing, why they disagree with the United States' decision to extradite this guy. Uh, they, why are the crimes he's committed or allegedly committed? Maybe they disagree with the, the allegations, but why are they willing to put their lives on the line against the most powerful military might in the world? For this guy. And like you said, he almost gets to it. It sounds like he's... But but if you listen to what he got out that before he got interrupted, it's meaningless platitudes. Tonight, the pattern ends. The dominoes fall no more. The ramparts will remain upright. 
What are you referring to, my my guy? You know, what are you talking well, okay. about? So I don't know if this is a stretch, um, but have you ever heard of domino theory, the political theory? No. It's basically this idea that once something happens, something if something happens in one country, it will happen to other countries around it. And we, we and this was a popular sentiment back in the 1950s, I guess, um, uh, in the U.S. to fight communism. So the idea is that if one country it becomes communist, then the neighboring countries will also become communist, and then those will come. And it's, it's a domino effect, basically, uh, because communism is an unsus- I think the theory is that communism is an unsustainable uh, ideology and would need uh, support from neighboring countries, and then those would also collapse in on itself. This is something that you see in um, Atlas Shrugged, actually. Like they see a as countries become more socialist, all the other ones around it also start to become more socialist, and they all collapse on each other. Basically, okay, it's not based on anything real. It's just kind of a thing people use to say that this is dangerous. So they say so this is this is a justification for fighting communism in any country because we can't let a single one fall to communism ah. because every single one around it will also get to it. Okay. Um, so the question is, is he fighting communism? Is the United States supporting communism? What is the, like, w- what sides are these guys on? What, what is the belief? And what, what is Esperanza? What makes Esperanza different so that these well, guys saying, believe in his, his mission? Well, he's... You say that he's anti-communist, Well, he, right? he won United States' favor by fighting communist insurgents. So he could be, so it could be that, you know, there's, communism is rising or something, and so they want to fight it. Uh, but they're not supporting somehow. him anymore. Yeah, yeah, well, the U.S. is supporting him anymore, but, but they, this is their ideology that, that they share with the U.S. And maybe he took it too far or something, which I can't imagine... Um, anyone going too far in South America and the U.S. not being behind it, <laughs> but whatever. Well, I, um, I'm just too uh, thrown off by hyper-normalization here, where I believe General Esperanza could be uh, some what of a Gaddafi, where he's just doing whatever mm-hmm. he needs to get more powerful, and the United States can apply whatever narrative they want to it, and that becomes the truth, at least from the perspective of the United States. Uh, but again... Die Hard doesn't even try to go that deep. What I'm trying to say about this whole thing is our our bad guys don't have an ideology. All it is is yep. United States says this guy's bad, so he's bad. And anybody who supports him by proxy is bad as well. And, and you can say drugs are bad, so mm-hmm. that's what makes him bad. He did drug trade. He's an enemy of the United States. That makes him bad. So he's bad. Don't think too hard about he, it. He's a murderer. Um, Stewart is a, isn't afraid to kill people. And be mean to journalists. I'll play you that quote again. We figured it's a joke. <laughs> Colonel Stewart, can we have a few words, please? You can have two. Fucking you. you. <laughs> no pictures, you pinko bitch. Anyway. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm glad so he's, he got that he's, out. He got he's a, a mean guy. Yeah. You know? Well, Stewart um, is, but also Esperanza, who was able to break out of his, uh, you know, shackles on the plane somehow yeah. can you can we please ex- that was another thing there's that only, didn't get explained there's only three people four people on the plane yeah and three of them are supposed to be like two of them are pilots one guy is guarding him and he's just sitting there i guess within arm's reach right and he totally takes him out right, right, right. but did they uh, did i miss something because from my perspective it was he lights his cigar and then next thing you know he's getting choked out so why did he yeah, let that happen no, 
it's it's not really clear what's like how one led to the other. It's just, but it's not important either. He took over the plane. Yeah, took over the plane. Yeah, I guess it has to happen. But like, okay, whatever. Uh, <laughs> anyways, but I think I, I think I got out what I wanted to say is that it's these General Esperanza and then his goons is the his subordinates as well um, aren't very compelling because you don't know what they believe in. They just are enemies, and that's it. So that's it's very surface level. Yeah. It's it's convenient the way they have it structured because Stuart is your main antagonist, right? But he's working for someone else. And because he's a military guy, he just follows orders, basically. So it doesn't matter what he thinks. And it also he never talks about what he thinks, not really. Um and so really the 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 ideological explanation for the events in this movie are on General Esperanza to tell us but you barely get any words out of him he's just kind of mad at Stuart most of the time it's it's not even a um there's barely even like a relationship there so you really don't get anything you're right yeah so that's it is disappointing but okay let's move on uh, I have two quotes for you that relate to John McClane versus technology. Let's listen to those now. Yeah, this is Lieutenant McClane. Somebody there just beat me. I'd like to think I'm somebody. Honey. What are you doing? Where are you? Did you land yet? Honey, it's the 90s, remember? Microchips, microwaves, faxes, air phones. <laughs> okay, well, as far as I'm concerned, progress peaked with frozen pizza. Listen, uh, we're going to be about half an hour late landing. I'm going to send you something here. Excuse me. Uh, you and faxes? This is the first. Yeah, well, Holly told me I should wake up and smell the 90s. Oh, geez. <laughs> first off, these quotes are so, so 90s. Like, b- bringing up faxes in both of them. as okay, like they don't just bring up faxes. <laughs> this is... Like a good five minutes of this movie is for is just them explaining how faxes work, showing the fax go in one side, come out the other side, explaining that there's like a number written on this. Like, it's like it, it's like Xerox paid them to put all this information in there. That's so funny. And John is like, "You wait, you're putting it upside down." And she's like, "John, it doesn't matter. It's the future. It doesn't matter. It's the future. <laughs> Get with the goddamn times, John. There's no more upside down. We have faxes. Okay." <laughs> <laughs> it's uh you know and air phones too which That's, i wasn't aware the air phones were a thing that almost like watching this now and being a kid who was born in 95 like yeah. seeing a phone on an airplane is like well they just invented that for so the plot would be more convenient that's not a real thing <laughs> <laughs> so it well, they had car phones last the last one didn't they they did, did. They have a car they phone did. limousine last in the one? limo yeah uh yeah. so and, and this one it's an air it's an air phone so you know again we're we're, we're we're following the diehard formula. Right. Um, but, but no, uh, what annoys me so much about the faxes is that fax is such is an abs- absolutely obsolete <laughs> thing. I, am, I cannot be less impressed by a fax machine. And they're like, oh, my God, have you seen faxes right. yet? John. Like, to really, like, to say, like, oh, it's the 90s is just kind of a cute way of saying, like, oh, technology is improving. But no, they're like, no, this is the 90s. Yeah. Come on. Fax machine. Fax machine. Let's go. John, you you dumb bitch. We have floppy disks. It's the Everybody, future. 
everyone is going to watch this movie in the future. No one's going to think that this is an underwhelming sequel in any sort of way. So they're going to be looking back on this tens of years in the future and wondering when it was made. So we have to make sure we tell them. <laughs> it's the 90s. That's right. Wake up and smell the 90s, please. <laughs> but, but, but besides just making fun of how 90s this movie is, my question is, what is the point of making John somewhat resistant to technological advance? Is he is it supposed to be relatable? And you know, maybe that's what makes him like an everyman. It's like, don't you just hate using a fax machine? Technology is such a hassle, you know? Is that supposed to be part of it? I don't know. It doesn't seem like that's like very strongly emphasized. Um, but throughout the movie, he also uses technology and his allies use technology to literally save the day. John never really comments on it in a positive way. I mean, maybe it's just a commentary on what it was like to be alive in the early 90s because things were advancing pretty quickly in a way that people were like, oh my gosh, like this is, ne- this is unprecedented technological advancement. So sure. But it also feels like a missed opportunity to say something. They're basically just saying like, literally it is the 90s. Like they could have said the <laughs> same thing by just having like one of those cups with like the 90s kind of design on the side of it. You know what I'm talking or about? Like- you know how Bojack Horseman, whenever they do like hat f- flashbacks, they'll like reshape. They'll do like a drive, like a scene where Bojack is driving and has all these billboards and like pictures of uh yeah yeah uh sign sign fronts or, or storefronts, right. and it's just all these '90s references. And they'll play a song that's like, "Remember, it's the '90s now. <laughs> yeah. Like this is a '90s song." <laughs> and that's really it's what exactly it is. Exactly like that. That's really what it is. Is it's just saying like it literally is the '90s, and I think I don't think it goes further than that. And I think the fact that they like comment on technology so much just as a coincidence because the 90s had a lot of new technology but uh, again it's like so surface level it's like listen it's the 90s so we're gonna include a fax machine uh maybe there's something there about how the air traffic control tower is so complicated as like a piece of technology and how like when you're interacting with something so complex there's all these different variables that you have to account for uh, and you don't even ever actually have complete control over the situation because someone could come in and hijack it if they have a better understanding or something. Um, but I, 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 that's not really clear. Right, right. I guess there's a, there's a bit of a parallel, like you're saying, where they use technology throughout the movie. But I don't know. I also think that from our perspective, it's kind of hard to be sympathetic to McLean in this situation. Uh, like you said, in the 90s, we were, technology was advancing really fast. But today when people are like i don't know how to use my phone or i don't know how to use a computer it feels so trite it feels like like you're not trying basically because the opportunity has been around for so long and anyone who wants to do anything now has to be able to use some form of technology or at least be competent at it so when people are like i don't know how to work my email it makes you it's it's frustrating because you're like where have you been the last 20 years whereas in this it's it maybe that was a more relatable uh thing to say because i don't get this technology thing i'm not up all, with all the new hip fangled uh, uh faxing and beeping and booping right and what is uh, john mcclain if not relatable so i, I think that's probably yes. what they intended for it and also their contract with their contract with xerox but uh okay let, let's move <laughs> on another thing i wanted to talk about was the symmetry of the plane explosions because i think that the the plane explosion with like all the passengers dying was one of like, isn't it is a scene that stuck with me? Like, um, first off, it's horrifying. Okay. And seeing all those people die unexpectedly in a fiery inferno is probably the heaviest moment in Die Hard to this point. Uh, the movie does well to capture the reactions of all the main characters with their faces 
illuminated by a sinister glow. This moment stuck with me and made it feel like even if the good guys won out in the end, that the movie was already an enormous tragedy, which was an interesting feeling for a somewhat lighthearted action film like Die Hard. Mm-hmm. When John lights the jet fuel on fire and blows up the bad guys in their you know getaway plane, we get a similar visual, but this time it's paired with a jubilant, relieved, and exhausted reaction from John McClane rolling in the snow, illuminated in a similar orange glow. Ironically, the explosion of the second plane was just the thing they needed to prevent the explosion of any more civilian planes. I like that. Well, for, for justice to be served, really. True. Because uh, they weren't going to blow up any more planes, essentially. Well, maybe they were going to give them control back. I don't know. But, um, yeah, that's interesting. I, it just reminds me of... Uh, it reminds me of uh, Tomb Raider. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so in, that, in, the, in the new Tomb Raider uh, games for the Xbox... And he, you, there's all these puzzles, but all of the puzzles can be solved the same way, which is just destroy as much stuff as you can in the right order. And then the, the, the thing will be revealed and you'll be able to get to the, the treasure. Uh, so it's always just, just like that because you're so limited in the way you can interact with the world in that game. It's just destroy as much stuff as possible is kind of the solution to all the puzzles. It's never uh, like, I see what build something saying. interesting and then uh, or like use your combined knowledge of these things to do something. It's always just like pry it open, kick it as hard as you can. <laughs> <laughs> burn it down so that's right what so in up. die hard they're like let's not try to solve this in any other way let's just destroy we have things one move until which is it. blow up planes we can do it for good we can do it for evil <laughs> but just taking it out of context almost and just saying like uh i don't know I, I felt like there was good symmetry with that because just to leave us with that one horrifying experience um like it was interesting to follow that up with another explosion that kind of pushes you in the complete opposite direction. I thought that was well done. No, it's very uh, satisfying. Both okay, of them are very satisfying. Yeah, and it actually, I'm thinking about it now. There was a, there was actually a plane explosion in between the two, which was when uh, Esperanza's plane lands. And I wonder why that didn't help anybody in the air find the runway <laughs> because it was a pretty gigantic explosion which was also one of my favorite sequences of the film was where the grenades land in the cockpit and john mcclain ejects out of the cockpit yes. that was super cool it's a classic thing he ejects and his face comes right up to the camera and then he like parachutes down yeah, yeah. pretty cool very cool okay it wouldn't be a diehard movie if they weren't criticizing the news media. So let's talk about that a little bit. We've got Sam Coleman, who's our local news lady, who is here in, uh, you know, near Dulles Airport. And, you know, I have a quote, I have a quote for her. We figured it's a joke. Colonel Stewart, come with a few words, please. You can have two. Fucking you. Those pictures you take, bitch. Right. So there we have Sam Coleman. And we also have the return of Mr. Dick. Thornburg, which of course calling him Dick is uh, considered comedy, classic comedy. And uh, so they go out of their way to continue to call him Dick. Um, and I guess he is a dick, so you know, it's. Honey, it's the 90s, remember? <laughs> Microchips, microwaves, faxes, air phones. People named Dick. <laughs> but again, um, like I said, Die Hard sets out to make the news media look bad. Dick makes his return, and once again, he has no boundaries when it comes to spilling the beans on whatever crisis is currently unfolding, with no regard for the panic he could be causing or 
whether or not what he's saying is true. He's just trying to further his career. He even says, network, here I come. (laughs) Which is like, okay. Uh, But then we have this new uh, news person, like I said before, Sam Coleman. And for most of the movie, she also seems like a pest who just wants to get the scoop. But at the end, she helps John stop the bad guys by giving him a ride in the news helicopter, uh, you know, with as well as covering up the news camera when John is embracing his wife after they're reunited. But does any of this really further Die Hard's commentary on the news? Is the message that news people aren't inherently bad? It's just bad when they do news. Like they're still capable of giving people rides in helicopters and covering <laughs> up the camera to prevent the news from being reported. Like, what is the commentary that they're trying to get across with the inclusion of Sam Coleman? I don't know. I really don't because they really treat her bad throughout this movie. They re- like, like you said, she's like a pest. And and yeah, at the end, it's so, I don't know. I really don't like the way that they portray it because it makes it seem like like the news coverage is bad in any sort of way. And I think you can make a, a pretty good argument that what Thurnberg does is unethical, but it's at the same time, it's like, it, like the reaction that people have to it, I think is not realistic. It, and it makes you like, makes you feel makes you feel like everybody is stupid it doesn't make you feel like the news is bad necessarily i I, at least that's the that's the way i felt about it well i i wish that sam coleman had been the opposite in in an example of responsible journalism where she did something where it's like we're still i mean she does report throughout with less fanatic reporting so maybe that's she's supposed to be the example of like just less harmful uh reporting Mm -hmm. but I, i feel like they don't emphasize enough a commitment to responsible journalism. I still feel like Die Hard wants there to be no journalism. And that just seems like a stupid idea. And, and they're not doing a good job of convincing me by just straw manning journalists. So yes. it, it doesn't feel like they, they really they had an opportunity to push past their one-sided argument in Die Hard 1. And they don't. They just... Now there's two news Double people. down. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So again, kind of disappointing. The chance, a chance for something deeper in Die Hard 2, and they just totally fumble it. Um, speaking of something deeper, let's look a little bit deeper at what genre this movie could belong into. I know we had a, a uh, you know, a, a heated debate in the first one about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Let's talk about if Die Hard 2 is a Christmas movie. And uh, in my opinion. It does happen at Christmas. Well, that's not an opinion. That's a fact. But um, <laughs> it happens at Christmas. But in my, in my opinion, <laughs> Christmas is here. Yeah. <laughs> it does happen at Christmas. But in my opinion, this movie has noticeably less Christmas stuff in it. Uh, the Christmas inclusion feels like more of a reference to the first movie and less like an explicit adherence to some sort of Christmas motif. I think that... You can have your opinion on whether or not the first one is a Christmas movie, but Die Hard 2 is not a Christmas movie. I think you're right. And looking at this from the lens that you brought from last time about whether there, there is Christmas representation throughout this movie, this one falls below that line, clearly. Um, because they, they say it's Christmas at the beginning, but it's really just setting this. It's, that's as, as important as saying it's in D.C., you know? It's not... Yeah. Um, it's not really informative to the plot in any sort of way. Whereas the first one, there are 
lots of references to Christmas. And again, maybe you can, I think you can make the argument that the movie couldn't happen unless it was on Christmas. But this one, you know, it's just like, I guess it's busy, you know, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's Christmas, right? right. The plan, you know, airports are busy all the time. They're, maybe they're more busy during Christmas, and that raises the stakes slightly. But it's, uh, I don't know, it, it doesn't necessarily change the outcome of it. I guess it also means that it's going to be more likely to be snowy and stuff, right, too. Right, right. But, you know, you could make that New Year's or something. There's a lot of different times people travel that it's cold. It might be snowing in D.C., you know? Yeah, and so. I would argue that Let It Snow is one of the less Christmassy Christmas songs because it's mostly right. about the weather in the winter. And, uh, and, and there's, I don't know, there's just, it lacks the inclusion of like shoehorned Christmas stuff. Like in the first one, he has that, I have a machine gun now, ho, 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 ho. where it's like, yeah. okay, that's kind of, it. This that's kind of weird that you would say that <laughs> even in a, like a movie that's taking place on Christmas, there's no like guy dressed as Santa Claus in this one. Um, I mean, they have those gifts that they carry at the beginning, but, uh, those are, you know, part of what makes it suspicious that they have gifts wrapped like that at the airport so anyways i just think just to comment on that even though this one takes place on christmas eve not a christmas movie and uh anyway yeah i didn't feel weird about watching it when it wasn't christmas either agreed i had no i wasn't like oh you know it's not like i was watching uh rudolph or something or even the first die hard where i'm like maybe you know i'm i feel like i'm in the christmas spirit or something that 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 didn't really cross my oh, mind. Oh yeah, in the fa- in the feeling of like John needing to be with his family on Christmas was totally missing from this. <laughs> like he might as well not have kids anymore in this movie. You know, <laughs> we didn't even hear. Yeah, essentially, he never that. even me- he barely mentions them. <laughs> so, anyways, okay, let's move on to our cool Easter eggs. Joey, what do you got? Okay, so this is a just kind of a fun little thing I found on the uh, Die Hard fandom wiki. When the film was shown in a cinema in uh, Pretoria, South Africa, uh, a light airplane was hoisted onto the roof of a local multiplex as promotion for the film. The advert backfired as the sight of the airplane caused serious car accidents near the cinema. Wow. This was a box office success. It did even better than the first one. Uh, Just proof that the best marketing for a sequel is the first movie. (laughs) (laughs) And it's definitely not putting an airplane on top of a right. cinema. <laughs> Although that would have been pretty cool. That's a that's a pretty good commitment, you know. Saying we're having a you know, imagine a movie coming out today where they do something like that. Imagine, imagine? a uh, a scene in Die Hard Two where when a plane crashes into the runway, people from the highway see it and then they crash as well, adding to the tragedy of the yes. situation. Imagine, <laughs> <laughs> imagine like you know. Captain America, like they put a big Captain America in front of the, the the cinema, and you know he's gonna be he's like the big statue or something to promote the new Captain America film or something. (laughs) Actually, okay, in in this situation, somebody could be like, "It's a bird, it's a plane," and it literally is a plane. Is a plane. Although uh, I saw somebody tweet, they were like, "Um, "I'm thinking about the guy who." looked at superman and got excited because he thought he saw a bird i know (laughs) one of the first two people talking about if it's a bird it's a plane right like right why are you you just do that every time you see one of those exactly yes screw you man i don't care (laughs) Uh. okay i have an easter egg for you 
And this is uh, because I was interested in Valverde. And I think this is, again, just more effects of having watched hypernormalization. I'm like, listen, if they're going to make a story about some leader of this country in South America, Valverde, that I, I, I'm i such a uh, American public education Andy. I've never even heard of this country. Um, let me research it and see if they're saying anything deeper about this country. Well, it's a fictional country. So, um, yeah. So I guess I can forgive my history teachers, my geography teacher, for not telling me about it since it doesn't exist. <laughs> but uh, it's actually um, used in multiple movies. This is a uh, like a fictional country that's used by Hollywood filmmakers, mostly 20th Century Fox, when they require a South slash Central American locale without getting into legal or diplomatic disputes. The country has likewise been used in the films Commando, Predator, Jurassic Attack, which I actually don't know what that is, and, and in television Jurassic shows Attack. such as Supercarrier and Adventure Inc. And I just thought it was interesting that they use it in multiple places uh, because it does sound like a real place. Jurassic Attack is a real movie. Does it ha- is it a f- part of the franchise of Jurassic Park? Or is- I don't think so. They're just trying to. It's got a 2.3 out of 10 on IMDb. Ah, yes. Probably just trying to capitalize on the Jurassic, the word yes. Jurassic. <laughs> Anyways, that's, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Valverde, unfortunately. Yeah, that is interesting. Not as politically charged or full of political commentary as I was hoping. Unfortunate. Yeah. Okay. I, I have a quote that I want us to listen to and then I'll talk about it after. Yeah, what's up? Did you pack the radio mics from the shoot, or did you put them in your carry-on? Are you crazy? I wouldn't let those assholes check them in. I love you. Give me one of the receivers. So this is the scene where um, our the reporter from from Die Hard One is trying to figure out why the plane hasn't landed yet. So he's going to try to intercept the radio signals, and he asks the like his tech guy or his you know one of his uh, mic operators if he has the mics with him or if he checked them in and he reacts like, are you crazy? And this actually, I think would be a legitimate reaction from any guy who travels on airplanes with microphones <laughs> because I've, I've done this. I've brought my podcasting equipment with me through many airports and like I've read forums online on advice on how to do this. And like rule number one is absolutely never check that stuff in because you'll, that's like a guaranteed way to get really? it lost. Yeah. I mean, it's not, but the time that you put your mic equipment in your bag is the time that it's going to get lost and it's really expensive stuff. So you're mm. going to lose it. Uh, but also it's such a hassle to get this stuff through security as well. Uh, because if you don't have it out in the open, they will search through your bag as I've learned yeah, on looks weird. occasions. Yeah. And, um, but also like, so I'm, when I travel with my microphones, I'm that annoying guy who has like four bins because I've got my, my, uh, laptop, I've got my Nintendo switch, but then I've also got like two more bins with my audio interface out and like my microphones and my cables all sprawled out. And it takes me forever to get through. It's a very real part of being like a mobile audio guy. And uh, I saw myself represented in this film when this guy Ooh. reacted in the way that he did to this line of question. <laughs> well, the only thing I have to say is I love you. <laughs> Um, but there you go. I uh, that's my one quotable moment. 
Okay, perfect. Joey, I think you know what time it is. It is time for us to go a little deeper. deeper, deeper. Okay, so this is jumping off of what you're talking about with the portrayal of the news media. I wanted to look into journalism ethics briefly. Um, I found some stuff on Wikipedia that I thought was pretty interesting. And then I also found something on Psychology Today uh, about moral panics, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But quoting from the Society of Professional Journalists, uh, there's a couple of tenets of ethics that journalists are expected to follow. And I'll, I'll read off a couple of them for you. Show compassion for those who may be affected adversely by news coverage. Use special sensitivity when dealing with children and inexper- inexperienced sources or subjects, which you'll notice is a direct conflict to what Thornburg does in the first movie, yes. uh, where he involves the McLean's children uh, like unexpectedly um, in their news broadcast. Uh, also, uh, be sensitive when seeking or using interviews or photographs of those affected by tragedy or grief. Uh, recognize that gathering and reporting information may cause harm or discomfort. Pursuit of the news is not a license for arrogance. Hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you kind of you see that again in this one too. He's uh, he's very much an arrogant guy, looking for his own personal gain. Uh, he's not. He's he's his intention almost seems to cause discomfort. Uh, and uh, I have another one for you. Recognize that private people have a greater right to control information about themselves than the public officials and others who seek power, influence, or attention. Only an overriding public need can justify intrusion in anyone's privacy, which I guess would excuse Sarah Coleman's uh, covering of the microphone at the end of the, of the, of the uh, covering of the camera lens yeah. at the end. You mean Sam Coleman, by the way. Sorry, I don't know her name. <laughs> <laughs> And then finally, show good taste. Avoid pandering to lurid. Finally, show good taste. (laughs) Avoid pandering to lurid curiosity. Uh, So again, you kind of see this from Thurnberg. He's very much like a tabloid journalist in a way. Uh, Maybe not. Maybe that's even. Maybe that's uh, even too good of a title for him. Well, they 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 say some of the things he's famous for on the plane when the flight attendants are. I don't know, reacting to him. And he, he has like these, I don't remember what they were called, what the headlines were, but they were very saucy. So yeah, it was like whores in the sky or something like right. that. It was very, um, yeah, it was, it was very disrespectful. Right. And, sure. and I know I already said this, but like, it would be one thing if Die Hard was saying, here's what journalists should be. Here's what shirt, like bad journalists are. Instead, they're saying, look at what journalists are. And that's just yes. such a dishonest straw man. I know. It's very frustrating because it feels like that could be, like you could use, there could be parts where the news is used well, I guess. Uh, but I guess this is, because this movie is so pro-cop, I guess maybe it has to take the stance of anti-journalists. <laughs> Oh man! I don't know. Well, the other thing is, there actually is an example of what I think the diehard you know, universe would consider to be good journalism, which is when they're reporting on Esperanza at the very beginning, and it's plot exposition. So that's what the news should be: is plot exposition. <laughs> I had to listen so, to that back like twice. Yeah. So I was like, oh, yeah. man, this is dense i i had to write down what they were saying just so i could understand all this political i know stuff. i don't know how a normal per like a person just casually watching this movie would understand you're not any supposed to you're not supposed to you're supposed to yeah. hear esperanza bad on the news that's it esperanza bad yep esperanza bad okay so this is not an exact um 
one-to-one relationship. And I don't think necessarily you can say this, but this is the closest thing I could find to what Thornbury causes in the airport, which is a moral panic. When I looked up stuff about like journalists uh, or, or news coverage causing panics, um, this is kind of the the the, the um, st- structure that uh, th- that it comes about uh, in any sort of situation. Uh, if you, if you, if you think about Orson Welles' reading of the War of the Worlds and how that caused this panic among people because they thought it was real, they thought aliens were really invading. Uh, it, it's it, this kind of falls into that line, and, it, and it's similar in a vein. Uh, so a moral panic is a, is a concept that was introduced by South African criminologist Stanley Cohen, and it's defined as a situation in which public fears and state interventions greatly exceed the objective threat proposed to society by a particular individual or group who is slash are claimed to be responsible for creating the threat in the first place. So... In this situation, he's saying there's terrorists and they're going to blow up the planes and everything, and they've already crashed one of them and stuff, which seems like a you know reasonable level of panic. Like I don't know how much he's elevating that, but I think what you're supposed to take away from this is that the situation is not necessarily going to be dangerous for the people on the ground, just maybe the people on the planes and the people on the ground probably are going to be safe. So they, there's no need for them to panic and cause an even bigger ruckus uh, and cause even more people to possibly get hurt right well yeah but he says that the terrorists have taken total control of the airport which implies that they're like guarding the doors with guns so people suddenly are like wait what and they start sprinting for the doors even though like they can see with their eyes that there's no terrorists so maybe that does fall into this this category because he's exceeding the uh, objective threat yeah he's he he gasses it up past what it was actually at and his um i don't know his his uh information was a little bit outdated by the time he was he was reporting it too so uh, right. not that he cared no that's that, that that was clearly not his intention like clearly not something he cared about so there's there's five kind of uh different groups that contribute to moral panics the first is called a folk devil and folk devils are those individuals who are socially defined or alleged to be responsible for creating a threat to society. So in this situation, it would be the terrorists, which seems like a not really a stretch. But uh, classic folk devils uh, could be aliens. It could be um, communists or socialists. Um, it could be Satanists or whatever. It doesn't, they don't actually have to be real. Um, and the, the things they do... Or they say that they're doing don't have to be real either. They just have to be something for people to be afraid of. Right. It's, um, it's in the United States. It's whichever minority we're, uh, you know, deciding is responsible yes, for Muslims, everything right now. Exactly. Mu- yeah, Muslim, I mean, it was Irish people at one point. Like it was it, Jewish Jews, people. Like it's it's all different. Black people. It's whatever Mexicans. we decide. Yeah. Whatever Americans yep. decide is going to be the ones. But yeah, we've basically had, anyone not American. Right. <laughs> Or if you are American but have brown skin. Right, exactly. Isn't American Um, enough? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So the second group is rule or law enforcers. These agents, these are agents of the state who are expected to detect, apprehend, and punish the folk devil. So this would be the police uh, or the people that, the police unions or or whoever. The third group is the media. Uh, The news media coverage of certain events involving alleged folk devils is distorted or exaggerated. News coverage makes the folk devils appear to be much more threatening to society than they really are. 
And there's a couple different ways that the like methods that the news media contributes to this. One of them is framing. So how the story is presented, uh, which is like the words you use leading up to it, the words you use afterward, the context you give for it. Um, and then there's priming, which is the psychological process whereby the news media emphasize a particular issue, not only increases the salience of the issue of, on the public agenda, but it also ad, uh, activates previously acquired information about the issue in people's memories. So together, uh, a certain framing can prime someone uh, to have a certain reaction. So if you talk about, if, you know, if you're talking about someone who escaped from jail in the same way that you're talking about protesters, right? You, uh, your that framing primes someone to have a certain reaction. Okay. Then there's uh, politicians. Uh, politicians have a sworn duty and moral obligation to protect society from folk devils when they arrive. Um, and the politicians are often often fuel a moral panic by aligning themselves with the news media and law, law enforcement in a moral crusade against the evils introduced by the folk devils. So they're, they're, they play a similar role to the um, law enforcement, but they're more public-facing, and they'll work with the news media to say what they want to say. And they're also more susceptible to the people's whim and the media and law enforcement, too. Whereas law enforcement, you know, they'll essentially follow the rules that they're set out to be whether those rules are right or not is a different question but the but the politicians are have more of an ability to change their minds essentially and to switch to a different stance uh, depending on how they feel the people feel they're not and sending course, they're not sending their best okay that's right uh, and then of course the last group the most important group is the people is the public uh, public agitation or concern over the folk devils is a central element of a moral panic. A moral panic only exists to the extent that there's an outcry from the public over the alleged threat posed by the folk devils. So in the situation of this movie, the moral panic is certainly not as widespread as more famous ones, such as the satanic panic, or maybe even something like QAnon. Um, those are, have more wide reaching, have more wide reaching implications. But uh, you can see how all of these different things kind of play into uh, the moral panic you see in this movie. It's really more of a relationship between news media and the public, but the the law enforcement certainly uh, is not there to uh, make people not afraid, right? There's no communication to the people in the airport about what's really going on, right? So almost the, there's like a vacuum of information that is filled by this moral panic. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, I I like the as as uh, scummy as Dick was for doing what he did. It was an interesting thing to include as like a complication for uh, the plot, as like riling the people up and seeing it on a more of a widespread, as opposed to what it was happening in Die Hard One, where it was more centralized and more for the purpose of spilling the beans to the villains themselves. Uh, this time, it's like, what can the media do to a mass audience? And what kind of chaos can they cause in that right. sense? So that, I guess because yeah. uh, like, like, uh, in the first one, there's, there's this constant theme that we, that we didn't really pick up on until later, that of like, anti, like anti-authoritative like, voices, right? They're saying we don't... We don't trust people that, like who have power, basically, and I think they throw journalists and the news into that group as well, and say they're also incompetent and uh, irrational and unethical. Um, and in this one, it, that that's not as clear, I guess, because you have that they have that extra. You have um, what's her name, Sam Coleman, who 
kind of complement Kate's the situation a little bit. But you're also, but he's, but Thornburg's also very much in it for himself, right? It's not so much that he's, um, he's representative of news as a whole, or, or maybe he is, but representative of like the dangers of someone who is unaccountable with their power as much as it is someone who's just kind of a, a mean guy, basically. Right. So it's really right. more of a personal attack on hit on that character than it is about anything else. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I just going back to like the being anti authority, it's definitely less obvious in this one than it was in, in the first one, because you know, in the first one they had, it's like the street level cops are the only guys who can really know enough to solve the situation and the fed. Like we don't like the, the, um, chief of police comes in he's messing it up the fbi come in they're messing it up in this one it's like well the local guy is like my biggest enemy and he sucks the entire time uh and then also the military sucks but they are traitors so i don't know if that's a fair representation of the military like it's it's just not i don't think and, there's a narrative there and trudeau the is way. like an ally to the, the, the air traffic control like lead guy who's like who runs the whole operation he's like an ally to mclean you know he's sympathetic to him and, and always looking out for him and listens to him when he comes to him with concerns um and like then they have the engineer barnes who kind of fits that working uh, class role but he's really like he has people that listen to him he has a, a position of authority uh, who also you know is clearly one of the heroes of the story so yeah you're right it's not it, that theme is not carried over at least not consistently right Okay, well, I think that is going to conclude our discussion on Die Hard 2, Die Harder. I actually, I meant to say that earlier. Isn't that, oh, isn't yeah. that a subheading or subtitle for it? I was trying to look into that, and I couldn't figure it out. Uh, on Amazon, it's titled Die Harder. It says Die Hard 2, colon, Die Harder. But on IMDb, it's just Die Hard 2. Right. So I don't, I'm not really sure. I think, uh, I think it's just a, one of the parts, it's a big tagline on one of the biggest, bigger, bigger, uh, posters. Yeah. It says die harder at the top and then it says die hard too at the bottom. So I think it, people confuse that with the title because they ha it's such a prominent, uh, headline and it's a tagline and it is pretty funny to say, although I would prefer <laughs> dire hard. Well, hold on. So isn't die hard three called die and die hard another day or something like that? Die hardest. Well, I think. No, it's. No, it's called Die Die Hard with a Vengeance. Right. Well, isn't it, um, you know, like a retcon where they can be like, oh, we didn't realize we were going to go with this whole Die Hard wordplay thing moving forward. So let's come back and call the second one mm. Die Harder. You know that? Well, they should have tried harder. <laughs> that's a terrible name. <laughs> Anyways, this concludes our conversation on Die Hard 2, Die Harder. And as we do at the end of all of our episodes, we will deliver our ratings. Um, Joey, I'll go first. I'm going to give okay. this movie a victory for our way of life, my pride, my admiration, and a kick-ass vacation. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. I give this movie... Honey, it's the 90s, remember? Microchips, microwaves, faxes, air phones. <gasps> oh, wow. <laughs> Such a, <laughs> a 90s rating there. Beautiful. Joey, what's next on Affable Chat? The next movie we're doing is Pixar's Soul. That's right, Soul. It's a new movie, and I've heard a lot of people talking about it. We're going to have our opinions on it on our next movie review episode. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
and wherever you listen to us. Make sure you leave us a review. It really does help us grow. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at AffableChat on all three, or send us an email, AffableChat at gmail.com. We also have a YouTube channel where we post uh, episodes of the podcast sometimes and also other things unrelated to movies. So check it out. It's called Affable Chat. Affable Chat is live on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash affablechat. Come chat with us live. And uh, that's going to do it for this episode. For Affable Chat, I'm Benjamin. And I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.